Joe presents TKO together with 32 Red. Hello and welcome to round 18 of TKO on Joe together with 32 Red. We're a podcast and YouTube show and we'll be with you every Thursday. Very pleased to say this week our guest is an award-winning sports writer. Numerous publications in the sport of boxing following the trials and tribulations of the likes of Emil Griffith in uh, Man's World. The Dark Trade Lost in Boxing, one which you'll know very, very well. And his new book in Sunshine or in Shadow about the troubles in Northern Ireland and the positive contribution that boxing made to them in the 70s and the 80s. It is none other, of course, than Donald McRae. So lovely to have you with us and I think the Thanks. first time we, we saw you was about 15, 16 weeks ago when we did our very first episode. Before, yeah and uh, hopefully this will be a bit smoother because that's <laughs> one I was interviewing Junior yeah. and you had the pleasure of uh, jousting with Senior. Uh, <laughs> baptism of fire. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Do you reckon yeah? But, but it was good. Definitely the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Well, it was good. Yeah, I won't use as fancy words as he does. So uh, apologies for that. I know. <laughs> Honestly, I'm pleased. I'm pleased. In Dark Trade, he was one of the protagonists, yeah. and you followed those guys from '91 yeah. for how many years was it? Five years. Yeah, to '96. I know that the um, covered the Watson fight in that as well. Sure. How did you find Eubank in the early days? When did you first interview? Um, I first interviewed him before the first fight, which I think was in June '91, mm. and I just had this idea then. I was thinking about the book, but I was just fascinated by these two guys. And instinctively, I loved Michael Watson because mm. he was just a genuine fighter. No bullshit about him. Was Eubank was the opposite. Spoke a lot of nonsense, but he was like no one else I'd ever seen in boxing or anything else. So I thought it'd be fascinating to spend time with these two guys. And then the first fight, as often happens in boxing, was a bit disappointing. And so they did it again that September. Mm. And the closer we got to that fight, I felt in Michael Watson, he was a gentle guy, but like animosity. He wanted to hurt Eubank. And I thought, this is not like the Michael I know. And he was totally dominant in that fight. And then, of course, as we know, what happened in the 11th, Eubank hit him with that punch, and Michael's life was never the same again. And I think that's when the book kind of I stepped back a little bit because I thought do I want to be involved in boxing when I knew what it could do but when it soared up so close it mm. made me think quite carefully but I love fighters and I just thought no I must continue <clears throat> yeah so that's when I first met those two guys because mm. that was I guess one of the defining moments and the the darkest moments of the 90s Ben McClellan probably sure the other that is comparable to yeah. that and I think in a way what what happened to Michael Watson was helped so many other boxers I mean Spencer Oliver and I have often spoken about the fact that if it hadn't been for Michael Spencer you know he might not have survived because he fought and you know had a brain difficulty um, but the the doctors moved quickly and I think the Watson Eubank fight made the the boxing board much more aware that they had to get the medics on site. Mm. It's a problem though that it takes a major incident like that before things are tightened up a little mm. bit. Yeah, absolutely. And as you saw with Jerome Wilson, who we had on the podcast, what, yeah, I guess so. a month or two ago now, mm. that even with those regulations tightened and, and everything as smooth happens. as it can be, sometimes that's still not yeah. enough, is it? Yeah. No. James Tony, another one of the main protagonists in, in that book. That first year you started writing was, was 91. Yeah. And that was when he won Fighter of the Year. Yes. Hell of a year for him. Yeah. Five or six fights. Yeah, absolutely. And what a character he turned out to be. So, yeah, we had obviously Eubank Watson, Nigel Benn, and then James Tony. And Tony was the guy I was always the most fascinated by. Mm. As a fighter, I thought he was formidable. Mm. Just in terms of his defensive skills, he was a master. And he certainly would study old fight footage back in the 50s. And I uh, had a trainer called Bill Miller who was so smart. 
At the same time, I was just thinking this guy is unusual because he was a former cracker uh, dealer. But when he walked to a fight, it would be his mother, his manager, who was a Jewish suburban housewife called Jackie Callan, and his fiance at the time, and his little baby girl. So this hardcore, yeah. you know, former crack dealer who was quite Tyson-esque in his way. There were all these women, you know, and I thought this is quite unusual. And we kind of headed off quite quickly. I think meeting people like Tyson and Tony, it sort of in a weird way helped that I was this white South African because this was back in the days apartheid was still kind yeah. of going on, particularly with Tyson. And there would be white South African <laughs> talking to me. And <laughs> in anything, if anything, it just actually helped us talk in quite an honest way. And yeah, with Tony, I was lucky early on. He said, do you want to understand boxing? I said, yeah. So he said, you must be with me in the hour before a fight because yeah. that's when you'll understand. And I did that with you yeah. in, in later yeah. years. And when I walked out, he fought a guy called Tony Thornton in Tulsa in Oklahoma. And that was quite a moment. He was world champion. He was almost considered pound for pound the best boxer. And just to walk with him, and I, I don't lie, I'm quite a shy person. And I don't particularly want to be seen walking with him. But it was actually important to just get a little feel of what it was like, the intensity in those last hours. So he helped me enormously. Very kindly, you sent me the uh, kind of updated yes. version of Dark Trade because yeah. I think that was published in the States a month Last, or two ago. Earlier this year, yeah. Earlier this year, yeah. yeah. And it features a chapter on yourself. Well, you just talking about that. You kind of yeah. touched on it there. That was, you were in our changing room in the Barclay Centre in, yeah. in Brooklyn right up until the fight happened. And yeah. it's really interesting for me reading back over it because you miss these things. You're kind of in the moment and in the zone and getting ready to fight. But... You know, you talk about the guy coming in and what he says, you know, was it something like... Um, seven minutes was one of them. Yeah, seven minutes. And then what did he say? Time to go or time to fight or yeah. something like that. It's time, I think it's time, gentlemen. It's time, time that's gentlemen. it. Yeah. But it's like these wee things that you miss and talking about David Hay and stuff yeah. being in there. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I read that in your voice. I think it was the words, how you doing, big man? And I just, in my man? brain, went, how you doing, big man? <laughs> 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 but it's, it, you brought the whole thing to life. Yeah. For people that haven't had the privilege of being in the dressing room with a fighter yeah. in that hour before, there's an eerie silence kind of punctuated with cracks of the pads yeah. and, and murmurs from people. But there's a lot of pressure on one individual, but actually it is shared by the group yeah. that are there for them. Yeah, and Carl is someone who would have a sense of humour and he could lighten the atmosphere just by making a little quip. And his sweet soul music is always yeah, <laughs> playing. Yeah. But yeah, it's something that makes me understand that, you know, this is not a sport. It's something deeper than just sport, actually. And mm. I admire the fighters even more, having been lucky enough to be up close to them. Mm. So you, you grew up, as you said, in, in apartheid South Africa. Mm. And so I suppose, and we'll come on to In Sunshine or In Shadow sure. uh, a little bit later on, but you've seen division in society as part of your yeah. upbringing. Just tell me a little bit about your upbringing because you were a teacher in the early years, weren't you? Yeah, um, I was just living in white suburban South Africa, had a, a lucky life out there, and you had to go into the army for two years and then do camps for the next eight years, fighting on the border with Angola. And I just did not want to do that. So while I was at university, I thought I'll earn a bit of money and I'll become an English teacher. I was 21 then. So I went into Soweto, which uh, this was mid-80s. Uh, I know you guys were not even born then, but yeah. it was height of apartheid. And as I went, Soweto is only 10 miles from Johannesburg. As I went down into the township, which is like a, a ghetto, effectively, of over a million people, black people, I was thinking, what am I going into? How? Cocky am I, this little white kid, 21-year-old. These mm. people will surely want to kill me. So I was kind of nervous, sweating heavily. But as I got in there, 
my fellow teachers were amazing and they took me into the Shabin, which was a little bar down in the corner. This is early in the morning. Yeah. And as I walked into the Shabin, there were pictures of Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali, Smoking Joe. I felt at home. I could suddenly talk to these guys about boxing and that helped enormously. And you've uh, been a fan growing up? Of, yeah, I'd me. always been a fan and so I had a little nip. Yeah. <laughs> I felt steady. Yeah. I had two wonderful years in, in that township, but I'd always been a fan and I was born in 61. By the time I was a teenager, Ali, sort of this 1974 fight against George Foreman mm. when he came to Zaire. I was 13 years old. We didn't have television because it was banned. But all our newspapers were gog about Ali. All our teachers, who could be talking in the most demeaning ways about black people, loved Muhammad Ali. Mm. So we'd say, sir, this guy's black. Mm. Yeah, but he's not like our blacks. Yeah. So that made me understand that boxing actually also has kind of a power about mm. it. And I think that's when I fell heavily for boxing. It's been a theme in a lot of your books, the power of boxing to bridge gaps and divides that otherwise yeah. exist. And those gaps Absolutely. suddenly become invisible as a result yeah, yeah, of it. Yeah. There was a fantastic light heavyweight champion, Bob Foster, who came to Johannesburg in the early 70s. And he was an amazing fighter. And again, just to have an opportunity to see someone like that just made me think that boxing was like no other sport and mm. open doors. Yeah. And yeah, that's been a theme in a lot of my books. So tell us a little bit about the new book. So in Sunshine or in Shadow, you're looking at the positive contribution of boxing yeah. to the troubles in Northern Ireland between 71 and 85? Yeah, so it starts in 1972, the time of Bloody, Bloody Sunday and goes up to all the other mid-80s. And I'd sort of in a weird way, always been fascinated by Northern Ireland. I think, again, goes back to living under apartheid. We heard nothing about Nelson Mandela. Yeah. He was in jail. But they would talk about what was happening in Belfast and Bobby Sands is starving himself to death in 1981. Was that to try and take away from the problems that were in South Africa? I think so, South Africa? yeah. And also to say, oh, perhaps we're not as bad as other hotspots in right. the world. So I'd always kind of been... And I just found the, in a way, a course way, it's vaguely similar that you've got two communities that are divided. In South Africa, it's by colour. In Northern Ireland, it's ostensibly by religion. But anyway, as I came to London in the mid-80s, I just loved boxing, and I quickly worked out that there's no fight city like Belfast. Yeah. It's the most amazing fight city in the world. Even people who love Philadelphia in the old days, I think Belfast blows them out the water. Mm. So I felt at home there. And then I think it was as Carl was sort of coming up in the professional game. Mm. I interviewed Carl quite a lot and spent more time in Belfast then. And that's when the book started. 2011-ish, I started thinking about possibly doing something. Mm. Three or four years before you first became world champion. Yeah. I didn't realize you were doing this book. Wiley. So you'd yeah, probably, just you'd probably of talked to me before. Thinking and I didn't about it, yeah. yeah. But it's... um. You very kindly sent it to me, so it's going to be great reading for me, I think, in camp. I'm looking forward to it. And obviously, I know there'll be a few familiar faces and stuff in it. Jerry yeah. Story in particular, who's, well, a, who's a great guy and has so many good stories yeah. and has done so much positive things for Belfast and cross-community relations in Northern Ireland through boxing. It's going, to be, it's going to be a really great read. And I think one of the moments, because when I was interviewing in those days, I hadn't actually started the book, but one of the things that started me was I was with you in Tigers Bay. Yeah. And the new lodge where the book, Holy F the Holy F Family Gym, is so close, isn't yeah. it? I mean, how long? Tigers Bay, where I live, the first street in Tigers Bay, and we're on the interface with the new lodge. There's 50 yards in, be yeah. in between Tigers Bay and the new lodge. And I was thinking, gosh, this is unbelievable. And I know Carl had done a bit of work at the Holy Family and so I just started to meet some of the old-time fighters and amazing people. My club was in Tigers Bay, 
and we used to train in the New Lodge sometimes. We'd always drive in from Tigers Bay. It's literally, from the club to the Holy Family, it's probably 500 metres. You'd never walk in, though. You would drive in. Really? And the guy who would drive us in wasn't there that night. And the other coach, Joe Farrell, says, we're going to walk in tonight, me and, me and Joe, because I was going through. I was like, I'm not fucking walking in. Just seemed alien and crazy, but it was the first time I felt unnerved. I was always felt comfortable in the new lodge and being in that boxing club, the Holy Family, as a Protestant. But having to walk in, it really unnerved me. And it's it's really strange. Well, it's the like same thing, you know, this book, I was going back and forth to Belfast for about four years. In the first couple of years, I always got a taxi because I didn't quite understand the location. So I thought I'd just jump in a taxi. And some taxi guys would, oh, I'm, I'm not going in there. You know, you've got to get another taxi. Mm. I finally worked out that it's actually from where I would stay. My hotel was about a 10-minute walk. Yeah. And so the last couple of years, I just walked in. Mm. But yeah, it's got quite a intimidating atmosphere in the gym but once you get in the gym it's like a bit of an oasis and like most boxing gyms yeah. fighters they don't actually care who you are outside if you show decency to them they'll be decent back to you and i felt that enormously at the holy family yeah. reading the book i think you mentioned that jerry story had this kind of diplomatic immunity to move yeah. across these sort of sectarian divides yeah. that nobody else in any other line of, of work or industry was yeah. given yeah. And that was that's hugely important for, for you because it wasn't as if there were other people that were able to move in this way. He, yeah. he would take Catholic fighters to Protestant areas to yeah. box yeah. And, and they were allowed to do so. And you mentioned that it was because you felt there was a working class background and a fighting background to a lot of the paramilitary leaders in each yeah. area. Therefore, there yeah. was inherent respect between the two kind of communities. I think so. A lot of those guys who chose the gun, I think they admired boxers because boxing's a hard business and it's violent of course so i think a lot of those gunmen who perhaps i didn't feel any affinity towards them i think they felt a lot of empathy for boxing they allowed him to do this whether they were on the sort of loyalist side they were happy that he would go into the shank hill loyalist unionist community and work with fighters there they were happy that he would take catholic fighters from the new lodge and have a show on, on the Shankill, which in the 80s, I mean, Carl, I know you weren't born there, but you no, would understand. I, I understand. My, my granda was actually a secretary of the Loyalist Club, and there's probably a story in this there book is. about Ireland versus West Germany in the Loyalist Club in the Shankill. So Ireland bo Irish boxers were in green vests in the Loyalist Club on the Shankill Road. may not sound a lot to an Englishman, but that was a big deal in the, in the height of the Troubles. And boxing got a pass and it was allowed to do that. And it was thanks to guys like Jerry. A lot of the gunmen would hand in their gun on the way in. And so sometimes you, and there's, in, in the book I have the moments where there's two fighters, Hugh Russell, Catholic, fought Davy Lama from the Shankill, mm. Protestant. And they fought in, you know, the King's Hall and supporters from both sides of the community came together in the darkest of times. Yeah. And there was no violence, even less violence than you would get at a fight now. They would support each other, you know, unbelievable that boxing could, could do that. And the first um, Hugh and Davy fight was in the Ulster Hall and it was mm. a bloodbath. They both had, I think, more than 30 stitches. Davy, who lost the fight, took Hugh to hospital in yeah. his car. They were, they were more scared that they were going to be stopped by the army. Yeah. And they, the army would never work out how could you have two guys yeah. from opposite mm. communities together. There's an amazing photo of that. I think it's the first fight and Hugh is... Um, Kissing his mother. Yeah, out of the that's ring. actually in, in the book. Yeah, yeah it's, it's beautiful, what, it's a beautiful photo, photo, but he's, he's blood is, everywhere, yeah. and that's, mm. it's an amazing photograph. Yeah. Things like that were important because there was very little hope 
during the Troubles. Mm. And so I guess the community needed symbols that there may come an end to this this violence at some point. And if you can all be in a room together yeah. and in a room peacefully, it signalled that actually there is a future in, yeah. in peace at some point. I think the subtitle of the book is, you know, how boxing gave hope. It didn't change anything politically because there were a lot of madmen on, on both sides mm. of the community, but it just gave people a little shaft of sunshine, yeah. a little glimmer of hope. And at the same time, there were no gigs happening because most sort of international artists would never go to Belfast because it was like a war zone, bombs were going off. So not a lot was going on. But when, especially amateur boxing, people would come together. And I think even Belfast, our amateur boxing mm. is huge. Isn't yeah, it? it's massive. And Steve Bonds talks about it like, Probably exaggerates a little bit, but he talks about um, young amateur boxers walking down the street and being asked for photographs and autographs and stuff. And you've mentioned it there at the start. Boxing, in my opinion, Belfast is the boxing capital of the world. Mm. People are so knowledgeable on boxing, amateur and professional. I'm not talking about the, the huge fights happening there, but if you want to talk to the average Joe about boxing, go to Belfast because they all, they all know about it. Mm. I mean, your career would have potentially been a bit different had you not been born there. You've been born somewhere else. Been born in the UK, for example. Might yeah. Because you know? you're, you're, I feel like your fan base is a big part I, of your yeah, identity. I completely, completely agree. So in my opinion, I'm probably, I feel like I'm lucky doing what I do. I feel like I'm lucky to have been born in Belfast mm. because of because of the support I get and support from both sides. And it looks like a Protestant guy married to a Catholic and don't really nail my colours to the post or anything. I, I, I treat each man how I would like to be treated myself and people like me for that and the community's coming behind me like and I get massive support from like I can walk <laughs> that doesn't maybe not sound much but I can go in the I could sit in a loyalist pub on the Shankill Road or in Tigers Bay or in Rathcool but I could I would equally feel at ease sitting in a Republican pub on mm. the Falls or Anderson's Town or wherever and I've done it I've sat on both and people People are okay. No animosity, no... None. Well, you know, we've spoken about in the Leo Santa Cruz fight, the first one, and how, how many people came from? About a couple of thousand? Yeah, about 1,500, I yeah. think, some 2,000. And maybe. after the next day, Carl said, come down to the pub. <laughs> and for one moment, you gave me your card and said, oh, just look after my card and give it to the woman behind the bar. Yeah. And, I was thinking, <laughs> and I think you had a heavy, hefty bill no, that I did. day. I remember. Do you know what? The thing is, though, I wanted to do it because people were coming to support me and it's costing a lot of money and I got pretty well paid for the fight. So a few quid for, I remember <laughs> I remember saying, we'll put, I'll not say the amount, but I put a, an amount on the card and says, just until that's finished, come back to me. And she came back to me and said like 40 minutes. Like, <laughs> what? Don't in the that? with four bottles <laughs> of champagne. I think the next, the next instruction I gave her was right, no doubles. <laughs> just paints, yeah. beers, singles, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and let's see how long. But the important now. thing was that day. I spoke to a lot of of fans, and they were both sides of the community: people who'd been on the Shankill or on the Falls, and Tigers Bay or New Lodge. And it didn't matter. And they're all just having a wonderful time together. Yeah. It just made me think, wow, Carl, of course, but boxing, what boxing can do is phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, you are listening to and watching TKO Round 18 here on Joe together with 32 Red. You can subscribe via the usual channels. Now here's Alex Payne, James Haskell and the guys from the House of Rugby for something a little bit different from Joe. <laughs> 
Thank you very much indeed. Yes, welcome to the House of Rugby, which seems to be falling apart at the seams as we continue through our series. James Haskell, the big totem pole around which we all dance. Mike Tindall, obviously a regular as well. We are the rugby show that doesn't cover a lot of rugby, but we do have a lot of fun doing it. Do join us every Wednesday morning. I was going to say Tuesday, that's when we record. Every Wednesday morning, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Alex. Welcome back to round 18 of TKO here on Joe with uh, Don McRae. Let's pick up from, from where we left off. I know we've talked about the kind of bridging of the gap that, that boxing did so well in, in Northern Ireland. I think sometimes we, we maybe mistake boxing for, for sport and we kind of say, well, it's sport that bridges the gap. But actually, from what you found, the interviews you did, that same kind of cross-community appeal didn't really apply to sort of football or rugby, did it? Yeah, and especially like in the Holy Family. I don't know, Carl, if you found when you went into the Holy Family, but one of the laws they had, you couldn't swear and you couldn't wear a football shirt because I think football has such um, a powerful... Well, boxing, obviously, people are passionate, but... F- Football fans are passionate in a yeah. different kind of way. Mm. You know where you're from, depending on the top yeah. you are as well. It sort of sends out a message and an allegiance to a certain club, which means certain community. So football could never do what boxing did. And I am a football fan. I think it's a wonderful sport and has power, but not, in, not to pull people together. So when you're conducting interviews, whether it's with Carl or whether it's with the guys in, in Dark Trade, you're doing multiple interviews over a, a number of years. Yeah. How do you approach each one? Do you sometimes go back with the same question a few years apart and see if the answer's changed? Or do you always go with a set objective when you go to meet somebody? Kind of shambolic, as Carl would tell you, chaotic, <laughs> and knocking coffee over things. But I'd, I'd go in with a, a basic kind of idea of what I'd like to find out in, in this particular interview. But the way I like to do it is like, a bit like this, just have a conversation, have a, have a bit of a yarn and not so much a question answer. Because if it's I'm giving all the questions and you, Carl's giving me the answers, it's a bit stiff. I like it much more if I can. I'd imagine they're not as open as well, the guy you're interviewing, if, if it's one question after the other. Yeah. But knowing you and knowing how you conduct your interviews, like it's just, just feels like a chat, really. Yeah. Sure. You probably get a bit more out then that way as well. <laughs> yeah, well yeah. yeah, you do. People start to get to know you. And I think they understand that I'm not out there to shaft them. I'm out to show them in the best possible light. And I think people can just chill out and, and be themselves. And yeah, as, as you find, as the years go on, you get to know them better. And you can go back to perhaps some of the earlier subjects. And perhaps in the first interview, you just skim those. But as you get to know each other, there's more intimacy and the answers get much more detailed, much more personal. And that's why I like to spend quite a long time on, on books. Because mm. I guess over a long period of time, which is what a lot of these books are, are written over, yeah. you start to find your your narrative or you almost go, this is what the story is. Dark Trade was was obviously about the inherent corruption and the yeah. the sad and more depressing sides yeah. of the sport. And the same theme of, of boxing bringing people out of poverty and giving them a pathway yeah. uh, is one of the oldest adages yeah. and you found that to be true the arc of course was that none of the protagonists really ended up winning in the end no. but this is this new book is this trying to kind of show that there is almost exclusive positivity in boxing or is it impossible to view the good sides of boxing without looking at the you've bad? got to have both and i mean in this book there are fighters who die again unfortunately and the the fighters whose family members are killed. So there is, that's why the title has got the shadow in it. Obviously, the title comes out of Danny Boy. And I think that was a time when boxing gave a lot of sunshine, but also there were a lot of shadows in boxers' lives and within boxing as well, because people got badly hurt, some died. But hopefully, I think in this one, in a way, a lot of people think, gosh, it's such a bleak subject. But there's 
I think, more uplifting moments than, than sad moments in mm. the end. Tell me about some of the main protagonists in, in the book. You mentioned Davy Lama earlier. Yeah, Davy, uh, a tough man. I think he's yeah. just turned 70 years old. You must know Davy. Yeah, I know Davey sure. well, yeah. Um, and he was mainly a bantamweight, um, sometimes moved up to, to featherweight. He fought out of a gym, the Albert Foundry. Albert Foundry on yeah. the Chandler, yeah. Um, but he came to the Holy Family because I think he could spar against good caliber opposition. And he became part of that gym because he kept going back and forth. And another fighter, similar way to him, much younger than him, was Hugh Russell, who uh, became a famous photographer, still is now. And as we mentioned earlier, these two guys had two bloody battles. Uh, Tell you a fact about Hugh Russell. Sorry to yeah, interrupt yeah, you. The only man to ever win a British title and move down a weight and win another British title. Because he was normally a flyweight, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. he wanted to bunt him and then fly. Yeah, yeah. But David would talk in the book about how, you know, his father, um, who'd been blown up in 1972 when there were a lot of bombs going off, and his father survived, but wasn't in a good way. But sometimes his father would give him a lift towards the Holy Family, and they were being stopped the whole time and searched by, by the soldiers. And then David would get out and, and walk. And there were many times when there was full-scale war going on and there'd be fellow fighters who would be, you know, making petrol bombs or having guns. And it was the Wild West. And David didn't touch a gun, but he still quite liked these fight, these guys who were involved in that side, but he chose another path. And I think I focused on people in boxing who decided not to get politically involved, not to pick up the gun. And for me, it was fascinating. It's such a violent business boxing but these were such peaceful men and so yeah that Davy you know came from the Shankill and he forged he was so close to people like um, Paddy Maguire who was a Catholic fighter when Paddy's father died Davy heard about it and he said I have to go to the service and people this was at such a bad time they said you cannot go you will be killed he said I'm going and about four other Protestant fighters went with him and he, it was like out of a movie, the way he spoke. There's just silence, people watching them, these four men walking. And normally in those days, four guys walking in suits that mm. looked like they were up to no good. But the closer they got to Paddy Maguire's home, people kept saying, this is Davy Lama, this is Davy Lama. And I felt the chills going down me when I heard that. I and, then, and then they just sort of welcomed him in. So again, what boxing could do. Then Hugh... He was just a whirlwind of a fighter, tiny guy. He always lied about his age because I think you had to, to fight in amateur tournaments in those days, you had to be 11. 11, yeah. So he always kept saying, oh, no, I'm 11. He was seven. He, he was so small that when he sat on the stool, his feet didn't touch the floor. <laughs> so, of course, you know, he wasn't allowed to fight, but eventually he, he started fighting and, and winning a lot of titles. And after he won a bronze medal, 1980 Olympics, he came back and he bought a camera in mm. Moscow because mm. he had a bit of money left over. Mm. And he suddenly started thinking, I'd quite like to take photos. And he thought, I'm going to take photos of my community. And what was happening in his community was guns yeah. were being pointed, bombs were going off. So he started just taking these photos. And he's a phenomenal photographer, Hugh. And he was fighting as a professional at the same time. So in the day, he would be called out to, there's been a bomb somewhere. He'd go to see awful things, mm. upsetting things. And then he'd go into the gym at night. Quite amazing. And then they had this thing where if someone has been killed, they'd ask for what was called a collect photo. So let's say my son has been killed. 
they'd come to my house and say, look, for all the newspapers, have you got a photo of your son when he was a younger person that you feel shows him a lovely light? All the newspapers will share that and then we'll leave you in peace. Hard thing to go knock on someone's door. Yeah, yeah. All the photographers always made Hugh do it. They'd say, you're the wee boxer. They all love you. Mm. So poor old Hugh, he always had to go knock on the door when people are at their lowest. For me. But they all loved Hugh. And, yeah, they'd give him a photo. But he said that was so painful for him to do. Mm. But at the same time, he's a fighter. So. And amazing to know that when you look at those photos, it was him that was behind the lens for those. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I wonder what your journey would have been like had you, had you been born 10 years earlier maybe 15 years earlier, because yeah. it would have been a, been a different thing. But I guess you, you're you a symbol to a lot of people in, in Belfast now and, and you have a certain responsibility to be a certain way and to shed light on, on the positive things. But mm. that would have been amplified tenfold had you been boxing during the Troubles. Yeah, I think so. So I kind of, I grew up at the back end of the Troubles. Well, the Good Friday Agreement was 1998. Mm. I was 11 years old. I was already boxing as an amateur. No one knew who I was yet, but it'd be interesting to think about what it would be like and, and what change it would be if I if I was born 10 years before and I, I was a boxer. Mm. might have been a completely different... Well, it was a completely different time in Belfast, but it would have always been interesting to see. I think that boxing is the sport. We talk about sport building bridges, but I think it's boxing in particular that builds bridges in Northern Ireland and um, it allows people to do things that other sports you don't do and you don't get away with in other sports. So it saved so many people. Not just to talk about, I'm talking about in, in the world. You talk about these, you know, James Tony was a crack dealer and stuff mm-hmm. and other guys in, that have bad backgrounds like that. But boxing in particular in Belfast, it saved so many people from joining paramilitary yeah. groups, maybe even being in paramilitary groups and then saying, oh, I want to get out of this and, and becoming boxing and boxing saving their lives and keeping them out of jail. It has been the saviour of so many people in Belfast mm. and Northern Ireland and Ireland. Yeah, you forget that that was the other option really at the time, the gloves yeah. or the gun. Absolutely. And, you know, the book opens with Bloody Sunday, which is sort of almost things that have been happening quite a few years before that. But many people see that as sort of not the start, but sort of what the first huge dark moment. Charlie Nash, who was the best amateur boxer in Ireland, he was one of 11 kids. And Willie was the boy youngest to him. Willie was a beautiful dancer, but a bad boxer they called him stiff nash because he was so stiff but get him on the dance floor he was as fluid as anything Mm. but yeah willie nash unfortunately got killed on bloody sunday and charlie again such a gentleman such a peaceful man obviously he was devastated and they came to him the gunmen came to him within days and they said you must join us charlie you will be the symbol the figurehead we will get justice for our people because obviously it was an unjust killing but charlie said no i'm not Justice is then killing other people. Mm. And so he would not move. He said, no, I'm not going to support you. I'm not going to become part of your movement. I am a fighter. I will continue to be a fighter. And I found that so moving and so powerful. Mm. I can always remember reading about um, when Elijah Muhammad tried to sort of recruit Cassius Clay. Well, did yeah. recruit him and, sure. and used him as a kind of figurehead alongside yeah. Malcolm X. And yeah. I think there was realisation from all of them that actually later down the line, that was not a positive thing to be yeah. involved with. And they looked sure. back on that and thought, yeah. really? should have done it in another way. Yeah. And so, so I, I guess, as you say, it's, it's about if you're in a position where you have an influence on people, making a stand is, is probably yeah. more important than making a stand for peace, as, as so many of them did. Yeah. Uh, have you been back and spoken to any of them 
very recently? When was the last time you... What, the guys in the book? Yeah, when was the last time you saw Sir Jerry? A couple of months ago, and I'm going back on Monday. I'm going to see him. I've obviously spoken to them on the phone because it was important they were all happy with... So they've liked the book and they're comfortable with the way it's been. With him, he was difficult because three assassination attempts on him. And to get him to talk about it, he was, oh, you know, what he's like, he'd make yeah. a sort of joke. Oh, it was no big deal. <laughs> and I said, well, just tell me. And then you'd hear that he'd go down into the docks and a bomb had been planted oh, under his sort of little, he was a sort of moving goods between the warehouses. He was targeted, even though the leaders of, you know, all the organizations had said he should not be touched. There were still people on the outside yeah. who didn't like what yeah. he was doing. Mm. But he would sort of, even now, he, he underplays it, um, which I admire him for. He doesn't want it to be about, he keeps saying this is about the fighters, it shouldn't be about him. But he's sort of the glue who holds the book together. He's a great man. And again, what you said there, like he tries to underplay everything, but he, he'll stay in the background, Jerry, and not, not say a lot, but he's done so much good. Just to go to the, May, the May's prison, what, twice a week? Is this the, and, and... Yeah, this was uh, in 1981 when Bobby Sands and 10 people had starved themselves to death in the maze. He got a call that the prisoners in the maze wanted him to go in and work, you know, doing boxing. So he was thinking, well, who? They said, well, both sides. He said, both sides? And his family, a lot of them are, are steeped in, in, you know, the, the politics. So people from the loyalist unionist side, he couldn't believe that those soldiers who were locked inside would want him. But they were actually the guys who, who led the call for him mm-hmm. to come in because they knew boxing would give them discipline. It would give them He trained the UVF, didn't he, inside the mayors? Yeah, he did. And the, and the cages were adjoining. You know, so you had both sides who were at war with each other the whole time, blowing each other up. But when the boxing happened, the I think the UVF UDA guys had it on, on the Tuesday and mm-hmm. the RA guys had it on the Thursday. Amazing. And they used to swap share equipment because the UDA guys had better equipment. <laughs> so they said, Oh, we'll give it to the, to your boys. And so this they'd be shouting over the wall, how's the boxing going? How's the jab? And he had this ability to do that. But he said to me that was the only time he was actually, he did it for about six or eight months. But each time he came out of the maze, it took him hours to get the sound of the jail out of his head, the doors closing, the locks turning. And he said he used to wait in a little shelter in the maze for a bus to come pick him up. And they had all the photos of all the men who were in the cages and they're all quite young, 20, 30, all there for life, it seemed. And he just got you know, quite upset about that. But boxing, again, gave them hope. He convinced the Mays to buy in, um, about five color televisions, which in 1981 was quite mm-hmm. a big thing to do, so he could show them boxing movies. Oh. And uh, so an amazing man. Because there were a lot of internments without trial, weren't there? In, yeah. Was it the 70s? In the 70s, yeah. Yeah. Some people should have been locked up, others perhaps shouldn't have been locked mm. up. But he just took them all as, as the same. He didn't want to know what you had done outside. He wanted to be with you in the maze and he'd help you become a, a better fighter, even though he understood you'd never be actually a boxer. It would mm. just give you a bit more self-esteem. There, there's stories of him like driving into um, Holy Family through the middle of the New Lodge when there's rats going on between IRA and and the cops and the and the army and it just stops Jerry's car is going through the middle of it and it's like hold on a minute there's Jerry's Jerry's going to the club and so some of his fighters would be they'd come out of the gym an hour later 
and the army would have them up against the wall saying, who is this guy? They say, oh, he's, he's our boxing. No, who is he? No, no, no. And they're saying, but there's a, like a ceasefire whenever he comes in. But there was never any official agreement that that was the case. It was just word on the, the street, was it? I think, I think the leaders all said to their people, he's untouchable Mad. on both sides. Phenomenal. And once he said to me in 1972, early days, he gets a call that the boys on the Shank Hill want to see him. Mm. And he said, when they said, the way they said the boys, he understood this is the bad guys, mm. this is the leaders. And so it was a Sunday evening, and they said, we'll send in a car with a lot of guys to pick you up. He said, no, 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 I don't want that. Because firstly, he wouldn't want them coming into the new lodge. But he said, I'll go on my own. So he went down in his car, and he always talks about it as being like a ghost town in the 70s, a bit like the Wild West, because most people stayed indoors. There were so many army patrols stopping you. Anyway, he gets to the shank hill, feels a little nervous because he thinks they know what I'm doing, that I'm coming back and forth here, and they're going to stop me, and they're going to warn me, or maybe even worse. But he walks up these stairs, and there's these 12 men sitting at a table, and he's thinking, we can pick out faces, you know, people like Tucker Little, big guys who were well-known. So he sits down and says, good evening, fellas. And they sort of say, good evening. And there's a long silence. And then they say, we know what you've been doing. And he's sort of thinking a bit, uh-oh, now I'm going to be in difficulties. And they said, we like it. We want you to continue it. Can you get some of your boys from the Holy Family to come put a show on at uh, the club where you're... The Loyalist Club? Yeah. yeah. Wow. He said, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> and then, you know, as you said, when your grand... Was it your grandfather? My granddad, yeah, yeah. He got West Germany to come fight Ireland on the Shank Hill. Uh, <laughs> and wow. the symbols and the colours that were worn were not symbols and colours that are seen on the Shank Hill. But that night, it was a huge success. And the soldiers said afterwards, they never known such a peaceful night as the night that West Germany fought for Ireland, for Ireland on the Shank Hill. Amazing. <laughs> wow. So, That's yeah. incredible. So this is, this is one of, of many stories that, that feature in the book. Um, which is, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm 100 pages in and I can't wait to read the rest of it, Don. Thank you for, for sending us a copy. So that's Pleasure. in Sunshine or in Shadow and that's out. It's been out for a few days now yep. in all good bookstores. I, I presume is the, is the phrase that we use for that. Yep. Before you go, we have a bit of fun before the end of the show. We do a 32 second challenge where we read you out a few phrases. You've seen this because you watch, yeah, the, yeah, you watch yeah, the podcast. Yeah. So I've got a list of words for you I'm here. I'm just nervous I'm going to have girls' names popping into my head. <laughs> Yeah, we've done some real digging on, on Don, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, my first book was on the sex business. So that's where we'll be. I wish, I wish I'd known that. <laughs> so, 32-second challenge. Are you ready, Don McRae? I am. Okay. Germantown, South Africa. Home. Teaching English in Soweto. Fun. Your garden shed. My workplace. Boxing. I love it. Northern Ireland. Home as well, in a way. Favourite interview ever? Mike Tyson. Dark trade. Where things started for me. Favourite boxer? James Tony. Jesse Owens. Icon, human being, fascinating person. Joe Lewis. Giant. Usain Bolt. Fast. Carl Frampton. King. Oh, nice. Jesse Owens, Jan. Carl Frampton, King. Not bad at all. Thank you. Don, as we expected, a pleasure to have you on. It was lovely being on. Thank you. Yeah, you're working on another book as well already, aren't you? 
I am. It's going to be announced in a couple of weeks. Publishers said I can't say anything yet, but it's um, it'll be out by the end of the year. So, good man. man. Another interesting part, eh? Yeah, very good. I enjoyed that, and it's great to see you again, Don. Good to see you, Carl. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Chris. No worries at all. We'll look forward to having you on again at some point in the future soon. Don. Cheers. Thank, thank you, you home for watching round eighteen of TKO. Done and dusted here on Joe Together for Thirty Two Red. Check out some of our other episodes as well. David Hay, Jamie Carragher, Mike Costello, Martin Murray, Josh Boatsy, and many more. And we will see you again as always in a week's time. You've been listening to TKO on Joe. Together with Thirty Two Red.